it's one of the things I love about this community is that there are so many young families, families with young kids. And, and even those of us who are maybe beyond that stage can certainly remember uh, that stage. It was such a fun and exciting and exhausting and frustrating and maddening season, right? Uh, the season where you're kind of up to your ears in diapers and in toys and where you've given over your family room to messes and nap schedules and, and things, never being able to go out on dates and never having enough sleep. And it's just awesome. Right? And yet, to you parents uh, of young kids, I would say this time you have with your little ones when they're really young is such an incredibly precious and valuable time in their lives. Right now, you are the primary voice in their life. You are the one who gets to shape who they see themselves to be, how they see the world, how they see God, and who they see themselves being in many ways for the rest of their lives. That's a gift. That's a privilege. My oldest son, Ian, uh, who's here among us now with his fresh new haircut, he's, uh, and, and is now regretting that I said that, uh, he's 12 and he's in seventh grade now and he goes to middle school and he's, he's doing great. We're really proud of him. But I so distinctly remember back when he was five, that first day when he got on the bus to go to school for the very first time. And I remember both my wife and I worrying And for you new parents or for those who are about to become parents, I want you to know that the worrying, that gets so much worse. It's, it's, it's horrible later. Um, you've got that to look forward to, (laughs) but I remember up until this point of both of us feeling like, you know, up until this point, mom and I have been the primary voice in your life, the primary voice teaching you what matters and what doesn't, what's truth and what to reject We have been the voice that's been speaking into you the the things in life that are most important. Helping you figure out who you are. But starting today, as you get on that bus, as you go to school, there are going to be so many other voices speaking to you. And some of those things aren't going to line up with what you've heard in our home. And so every day I would go to the bus with Ian and I would stand there and I would wait for the bus to come. And then as he got on, the very last thing I would say to him is, I love you. Remember who you are. I said it every single day. And I don't know what impact that had, but I wanted him to remember just how much he was loved. I wanted to remember the things that we had taught him in our home. In the midst of all those voices, remember what really matters. Remember who God says you are. Remember that you're loved. Remember that you're cherished. Remember that you were created as a masterpiece for a purpose. That God has great plans for you. Remember who you are. Well, seven years later, I'm not walking to the bus stop with Ian anymore. (laughs) But the voices have changed. And I still have those same thoughts and fears. I mean, the voices that he heard when he was five and six and seven, those were one thing. But now there's new voices with all kinds of new ideas. Ideas about sexuality, ideas about politics and science and God and how important clothes are, how important money is what it takes to be cool, what it takes to be accepted. In the midst of those voices, I think I have even greater concern, even greater desire for him to remember what was the most important thing. What is at the core of who he is? Last week I was dropping off at school and I said for the first time in a very long time, I love you. Remember who you are. I don't even know if it registered for him, but I think it's a reflection of the fact that that is still a father's heart. That in the midst of all these voices that he would remember at his core who he really is. 
I think that's a, a picture of a father's heart. And I think it's also a picture of the heart of the author of Hebrews. We're in Lent right now. And we're studying this book of Hebrews. And we're walking through it piece by piece. It's called Remembering Messiah. And essentially the idea is that this author of the book of Hebrews is writing to these Christians. And most of whom had been Jews at one point. But at some point had converted to Christianity. They'd received this call on their life from God, and they had responded to that call. They'd responded in incredible and remarkable, radical, bold ways. They'd stepped out and they'd proclaimed Christ in public. They were loving each other in an exemplary fashion. They were knocking it out of the park. And yet their conversion came at a very high cost. When they converted from Judaism, they were then forced out of, in many cases, their Jewish communities. It had cost them their jobs, their families, their friendships, the life they knew. And as the author is writing to them, they've experienced new persecution. You see, because not only were they persecuted and removed in the hardships of being Jewish, but at the same time, Nero was now governor, I mean emperor. And he was persecuting both Jews and Christians. And Christians were being killed for their faith, brutally killed for their faith. And the pressure is getting greater and greater. And these Christians who had started off so passionately with such fervor were now struggling. And as time passed and as the very real costs of their faith grew, they were getting tired. They were growing weary. They were growing more and more disenchanted with this new faith. And they began to think back to remember fondly the days when they were part of the Jewish community. When life was simpler, when there were a list of rules and regulations that they could follow and know that they were in, that they were God's chosen people and and everything was all right. I mean, it wasn't great, but at least they weren't getting killed. And to that, the author is saying, remember who you are. Remember who you've become. Remember what God has done in you. Remember the truth. Remember the hope. Remember the promise. Remember Messiah. Last two weeks, we've looked at chapters one and two, and this week we're going to dive into chapter three. It starts off this way. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and who are partners with those called to heaven, I think carefully about, think carefully about this Jesus, whom we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. First, he addresses them as dear brothers and sisters. That's significant. The ESV translates it this way. It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And the idea behind that is that he's speaking directly to their identity as Jews. He's speaking directly to their identity as God's chosen people. All of Abraham's descendants would have seen them as, seen themselves as sort of a holy brethren. God's chosen people, those called by heaven. Moses had delivered to them the news that they were to be God's chosen people. Moses had delivered to them that that they were going to have the law, the book, the Torah, God's holy word. And then the author of Hebrews, speaking directly to this Jewish audience, says something more profound. He says, think carefully about this Jesus whom we declare to be God's messenger, God's high priest. He acknowledges that they saw Moses as a primary messenger of God. But he's reminding them that at one point, at least, they had declared that Jesus was, in fact, a messenger of God as well. They had proclaimed that publicly. Then he goes on. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. That last phrase, when he was entrusted with God's entire house, that house language sounds cryptic to us. 
Perhaps like, what, what is that talking about, God's house? But to his original audience, this Jewish audience, they would have recognized that he was referencing early on in, in ancient Israel's history when they had been freed from slavery by Moses and had been delivered to the promised land. And in the midst of it, they were in the wilderness wandering and God delivered to them the law through Moses. It says, then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tabernacle. Aaron and Miriam, which are Moses' brother and sister, he called and they stepped forward. And the Lord said to them, now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams, but not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, there's the house language, he is the one that I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. So that house language is really about defining the people of God. The house of Israel is the house of God. And all of them as the chosen ones of God represent his house. And of all of those people, God had singled out Moses in unprecedented ways. God spoke to Moses, not through riddles, not through dreams, not through visions, but directly face to face. That was unprecedented. In Jewish history, you know, Moses was the guy who who God used to free his people from slavery, to give them the law, to lead them to the promised land, to establish them in a nation. This was like their biggest superstar, big deal guy in all of their history. We don't have something like that really in our history. It would be like combining George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Harriet Tubman and, and all these different characters together. You know, uh, JFK and Mother Teresa, the Pope, Reagan, Martin Luther King, if Reagan makes the list. I don't know. We have a Reagan fan. All right. <laughs> he wasn't a messenger from God. Moses was the messenger from God. So the author is saying, think carefully about Jesus, who was faithful just like Moses had been faithful. But then he goes one step further, continuing that house language. Verse 3, but Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. And that's a bold statement given his audience. He's saying, the guy who you hold up as the highest regarded person ever in history, Jesus is even greater than that. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths that God would later reveal. But Christ, as the son, is in charge of God's entire house. So Moses is great. He's not denigrating Moses. He's not denigrating the law. He's saying Moses is great. But as high as that is, Jesus is even greater. He's in charge of all of it. And so, again, they're a Jewish audience. They're, they're still tracking with him. They're still following along. He's using Old Testament language. And he's reminding them that they themselves had at one point at least acknowledged that Jesus was the very son of God. They had pro- publicly proclaimed that, that Jesus was above all of creation. And so they're tracking, they're following him, whether or not they're agreeing. But then the author says something shocking. He takes it one step further. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. I'm like, yeah, we're God's house. We get it. We're the house of Israel. Wait, there's an if? What's what's the if? And the author says, yeah, there's an if. And that if is a big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal that the author is going to spend the rest of this chapter, and in fact, in a lot of ways, the rest of the book, explaining exactly what that if means, why that if is significant, 
and what it means for them, and in many ways what it means for us. The author can't give sort of an unqualified assurance that, that you can just walk away from the church. You can walk away from God, and everything's going to be just fine. There's an if. In some way, he's saying that their identity, their, their place, their identity as the people of God was somehow, their standing as members in God's house was somehow contingent on their confidence, on their courage, on their hope in Christ. And that would have been a very uncomfortable message. These people had spent their entire lives seeing themselves as God's chosen people by birthright. But I think it might be uncomfortable for us as well. I mean, I grew up, probably many of you grew up in a tradition that believed that, you know, if you did the right steps, if you prayed the right prayer, if you were baptized, if you went to church, if you were a good person, whatever it was, that somehow then you were just kind of in, you were a lifer, you had fire insurance from hell. But the passage here, the author here seems to be indicating that, that it doesn't work that simply. And he illustrates this point even further by referencing to his Jewish audience their own history in a way that every Jewish reader would have immediately recognized. He quotes Psalm 95. He says, speaking to them not as ancient Israel, but speaking to them in real time right now. This passage that was originally about ancient Israel, he now makes it about them. And he says that the Holy Spirit is the one who's speaking this. It says, that is why the Holy Spirit says, today, when you hear his voice, Don't harden your hearts, as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said, their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath. They will never enter my place of rest. Just as as Moses was sort of the central figure that every child knew, this story of Israel wandering through the desert, wandering through the wilderness, that was the central story for Jewish children. They would have all grown up hearing that story and familiar with the fact that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It's interesting, this week as I was doing research, um, one of the things that I came across by several authors, they said that this journey from, from Egypt to Israel should have taken days, maybe weeks, It took them 40 years to make this journey. 40 years that were wasted, spent wandering in the desert. And worse, it says that a whole generation of people, a whole generation of Israel never got to experience, never were able to enter the promised land, never were able to experience God's rest. Why? What was their great sin What was the sin that was so great that it cost them 40 years and a future? It says they stopped believing. I mean, we could go into a lot more detail than that and look at 40 years of failures and choices. But at the heart of it, it was about belief, faith, trust, trust that God would do exactly what he said he would do, that he would be who he said he would be. God's love is unconditional. But apparently his rest is not. It's interesting that unbelief and disobedience are so closely associated in Hebrews. And in the Old Testament verses that it references, Numbers 14, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me, even after all the miraculous signs that I've done among them? 
Now, I want to clarify, I don't think that this idea of believe me, uh, this isn't about having some sort of airtight list of all the right doctrines and believing you know, all the right things and only the right things. This is about believing that God is who he says he is. That God will do what he promises to do. This is about believing in the character of God more than we believe in our circumstances, our experiences, our perspective. And when things got tough for Israel, instead of trusting in God, who had countless times demonstrated through miracles and signs, who had, who had delivered them miraculously from Pharaoh and from Egypt, who had split the Red Sea and allowed them to walk through on dry land, who had given them food and shelter and, and water and everything they needed, who had given them military victories. In spite of all of that, instead of trusting and believing, they questioned and complained. Countless times, Israel came to Moses and said, we were better off in Egypt. We were better off as slaves. Because at least then we knew where the meals were coming from. At least then we knew the system. At least then we knew what would get us beaten. They wanted to retreat back to the familiar the comfortable. God literally brought them to the very gates of the promised land and they looked in and they saw the land of milk and honey. But they also saw giants. They saw these things that were scary and they said, we don't believe that God is big enough that God will do what he says he will do. And they didn't believe that God would deliver. And so this author of Hebrews writing to this first century Jewish audience is saying to them, you're acting just like the people of Israel did. Just like them, you want to retreat back to the familiar, the safe, the known. And so he gives them a stern warning. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. This is not a passive message. This isn't sort of a, hey, check yourself before you wreck yourself. This is him saying, check yourself. Check your heart. Check your heart that your heart is not turning away from God. Don't make the same mistake that our ancestors made. Verse 13. You must warn each other every day while it's still today. So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. I love that phrase. Warn each other every day while it's still today. He's again referencing that, that Psalm 95. Today, when you hear the voice of the Lord. Don't hear He's like, today while it's still today, warn each other there's an urgency to this. But I think there's also, there's also some grace in this, I think. I think part of what the author is saying, what, what he's acknowledging, is that their circumstances were hard. They were facing death. They had lost their jobs. They had lost their families, their, their privilege. They lost everything. So I think the author is saying, yeah, this is hard. This is horrible at times. We need daily reminders. We need daily reminders of God's faithfulness. I think part of what he's acknowledging is that we need each other. And that's a message for them and it's a message for us. We need to be reminded. We need to be warned. We need to be encouraged and challenged and affirmed. We live in a culture that loves affirmation. And affirmation is awesome. But I think we also need challenge. And sometimes you need warning. Continuing in verse 14. If we're faithful to the end... For if, it's an important if, for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as we did when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. He's calling 
them to remember when they first encountered Jesus, when they first believed, when the Holy Spirit first came upon them. He's, he's calling them to remember something that was even greater than the history that was safe. He's calling them to remember Messiah. And then one more time to make sure they get it, he quotes Psalm 95 again. These first couple of verses. Remember what it says. Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. And skipping down to verse 19. So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. Again, there's this link that the author makes between unbelief and disobedience. That's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable to kind of our modern ears, our modern sensibilities, right? It should be. I mean, it sounds really, really harsh. It sounds really intolerant. I mean, doesn't everyone have a right to believe whatever they want? Don't we all have the right to make the choices that we make? And I think the author of Hebrews should say, absolutely. Absolutely you do. And the choices that we make matter. I think that he would say, the author of Hebrews should say that who we believe God is, who we choose to believe God is, is one of the most important decisions, one of the most important beliefs that we can make. He would say that who we believe Jesus is, is one of the most important decisions that we can make. And yet, uh, and one of the core questions is, do we really believe that God is for us? That God is for you? Or is God some, you know, being in heaven who's looking down in anger and ready to smite us? who's arbitrary and cruel. What we believe about God is one of the most fundamental things that matters. Do we believe it? And yet, we don't want to be simplistic about this. I mean, just as Israel in uh, the wilderness faced real struggles, the, the people in Hebrews faced real struggles. I mean, it's easy for us to look back at, at these biblical characters and think, how could they be so blind? How could they be so dumb? How could they make such foolish choices? But faced with the same things that they were faced with, I don't know that I would have made any different a choice. And I'm guessing that's true for some of us in the room today as well. I've not been here long, but in the time I've been here, I've gotten to hear some of your stories. Some of you have shared the loads that you're carrying. And I know in this room, in this community, there are marriages that are absolutely on the rocks. Where it doesn't look good where things are coming apart at the seams and there's not a lot of hope. I know that there are people who have diagnoses for which there is no good prognosis. There's not a light at the end of that tunnel. The life that you have left is going to be filled with trial. I know that there are people in this community that struggle with debilitating depression, where just getting out of bed is overwhelming. Those are real hard struggles. And when you're in the midst of them, it can be so hard to see any light, any hope. It can be so hard to see God. And so to look at that person, a person in that place, in that hole, and to say to them, unbelief equals disobedience? Man, it just seems cruel. Right? On top of the pain that you're feeling, on top of the hopelessness, the darkness that you're experiencing, I'm going to pile on guilt. So what do we do with that? 
Is that what the author of Hebrews is presenting as the heart of God? I don't think so. I mean, I think even to that, even to the very real pressing, painful things that we experience in this life, I think the author of Hebrews is offering hope. Three times the author quotes that passage from Psalms. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And I think in those two lines, there's a whole lot that we need to unpack that, that points us to what God's, really, what God's heart really is. It says, today, when you hear his voice. I think that's an indication that God is, in fact, present. In the darkness, in the, the, the barrenness of life sometimes, it is difficult to know that God is there, but he is there and he is not silent. God is speaking. No matter how distant, no matter how quiet, God is speaking. Sometimes it's through his voice of his spirit. Sometimes it's through the voice of others in this community. But God is speaking. Will we hear his voice? Will you hear him? And then secondly, will you choose to allow your heart to remain soft? I don't know if you picked up how many times in that passage it talked about the hardening of the heart. And each time it did, it, it, it implied that it was actually an act of choice. That Israel chose to harden their hearts. And so he's warning them three times. He says, don't harden your hearts. Will you choose to remain soft, to remain open, to maintain a stance of openness towards God and what he might be doing? Or will you turn in these moments away from God and say, I'm done waiting on you. I'm done trusting you. I'm done believing that you care, that you love me, that you're for me, that you have a plan that is good. I get it. I, we don't want to make this simplistic. We don't want to gla- gloss over the fact that life is full of very, very difficult situations. What I think this passage is saying that in those situations, we have a choice what stance we take. Will you keep your heart open to the heart of God? So what does that mean? What is this heart of God? Let's, let's look back briefly at the text. Back in verse 19, it says, So we see that because of their unbelief, They were not able to enter his rest. So what was it? What was the cost because of their unbelief? What did they lose? The ability, I'm doing a Chris thing here. You're supposed to respond. (laughs) The ability to enter into his rest. Exactly. I, I think that points to the fact that at the very heart of God, at the very center of who God is, is this idea of rest. If you have a fill-in, you're going to fill in. This is the first blank. God's desire is that we, that all of humanity, would experience rest. And that's been true throughout all of history, from the very beginning of time. Genesis 2 points to the fact that, that God took six days to create the earth, but then on the seventh day he rested. The only reason that's included in this story is because he commanded us to then do it as well. In fact, he made it one of his top ten commandments. That we should take a day and experience rest on a regular basis. God rescued Israel from Egypt so that they could go to the land that was flowing with milk and honey where they could find rest. It's a theme that you find throughout all of scripture. Jesus in the New Testament in Matthew 11 says, Come to me all who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden that I give you is light. 
God is for us and, and his plan, not just for us as individuals, but for his people, is that we might live in that constant rest of, of allowing God to provide for us, allowing God to be for us, even in the midst of our circumstances. Will we let him? And that rest that he points to here and throughout scripture isn't just this idea that someday, you know, pie in the sky when we die, we're going to go to heaven and experience rest. Certainly that's part of the picture. But what you see throughout scripture is that is a rest that is meant to be experienced in this life. That's meant to be experienced now in the midst of the very real trials that we experience. That is the peace that passes understanding. Not that we won't be experiencing real trials, that we will be somehow rescued from it and out of it, but that in the midst of it, we would know God's heart. And here's the good news according to Hebrews. That was the last chapter, or the last verse of the chapter. The very next verse, the very next chapter, Hebrews 4, 1, it says, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. He says that is a truth for them, and he says it is a truth for us. That promise, that is the very heart of God, and God's heart does not change. That promise still stands. We can experience it. But then there's a part two to the verse. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that was that God has prepared this rest, this has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. God's love is unconditional. We sang of that love. Oh, how he loves us. He loves all of us. Everyone on earth. For God so loved all the world. But our experience of God's heart, our experience of God's rest, apparently is conditional. What the author of Hebrews says is let's call each other. Let's remind each other. Let's warn each other. Let's tremble in fear that some might not get to experience this amazing rest in the midst of pain. Number two, it says we need each other. We need to be spurned on. We need to be sometimes goaded and led and called and encouraged and affirmed. Christianity is a team sport. There are no lone wolf Christians. We need people who will sharpen us, push us, warn us. If there's anything we see from this story and throughout all of Israel's history, it's that the people of God are forgetful. We go through these seasons of remembering God's faithfulness and seeing God's faithfulness and then walking away every day while it's still today. Third, I think the, the author of Hebrews is saying we have to guard our heart. Be aware of the condition of our heart. It's okay to wrestle with God. It's okay to question God. It's okay to get, even get angry with God, to cry out to God in desperation and frustration. But he was saying that even in that, don't turn your heart away from God. Remain open to God, what God might be doing. Three times in this chapter, chapters three and four, three times he quotes Psalm 95 saying, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And then finally, I think the last takeaway that the author of Hebrews uh, gives us uh, was way back at the beginning of chapter 3 when we first started reading. It's the point of the whole book. It's the whole series. It's the whole season of Lent. Think carefully about the person of Jesus. I love that in the message translation, the header for this chapter, uh, most, most of them say Moses is greater than Jesus. But in the message it says, this, um, the centerpiece of all we believe. 
Jesus Christ is at the very center of all that we, as followers of Christ, believe about God, who he is. And according to chapter 1, it says, The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God, and he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Jesus is the complete messenger. What, what Moses had done in part, Jesus has done completely. He has revealed the very character, the very nature of God. And he's a perfect representation of the heart of God. I went through a season, not many years ago, but at a critical time in my adult life, where I think in a lot of ways I was processing and I saw a lot of things within Christianity that I just really struggled with. Uh, a lot of the, the doctrines and the beliefs, stuff that I just couldn't get my head around. I mean, if God is good, if God is loving, why does he allow good people to suffer? If God is good, then why is there pain in the world? Why is there poverty? Why doesn't Jesus come back? Why, why, why? These questions that I think are difficult and need real answers. And there's different doctrines and beliefs about who God is. You know, Calvinism versus Arminianism, predestination, free will, all these different ideas. And I just couldn't get my head around it. It was just too much. And I, and I got frustrated and I walked away. And I looked at a lot of Christians, frankly, uh, myself included. And there was so much hypocrisy and so much... Uh, you know, saying they believe stuff that they couldn't really even make an argument for. And I just, the whole thing was too much. And in a lot of ways, I walked away really for a number of years. Um, and, but there were moments, I think, in the process of that, in that journey where God spoke. I mean, I think no matter what proof God might have given me, even miraculously during that season, I don't know that he could have broken through the hardening that I was placing around my own heart. But one night I was out with a friend of mine, a guy named Jason Nauman. I don't know if anybody knows Jason, but uh, he and I were out for coffee and I was just kind of sharing with him some of the struggle that I was facing and the frustration that I was facing with these questions that I couldn't find answers to and, and how the doctrines that I was reading just frankly didn't offer a whole lot of hope. It was just more confusion. And he just kind of quietly waited and, and smiled and he was a wise guy and uh, not a wise guy, but a, a wise man. And... Uh, he just kind of smiled. He goes, yeah, you know what? I, I get it. Uh, if you're trying to get to who God is through all those different layers and levels and doctrines and systems and failures, you're never going to find God. And he took out a napkin. I know this sounds untrue, but it was Dunn Brothers at Grand. And anyway, um, took out this napkin. He just drew this series of concentric circles. And then he wrote the name Jesus right at the very center of the circle. He said, you got to start there. Right in the middle. You've got to start with the person of Jesus. And then you work your way out through all that other stuff. That stuff that, that really doesn't matter. If you know who Jesus is, if you can work that out, then all the other pieces will come together. You can figure that out, but you have to figure it out through the lens of who Jesus is. Because that is how you know God. It was simple. It wasn't all that profound. And yet I remember it all these years later because it was a turning point. It was a point for me where I realized, okay. I can either turn toward that and say, God, I don't get it. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. This doesn't make sense to me, but I will remain open or I could turn away. Uh, a friend of mine sent me, another friend of mine this week sent me a quote from Sarah Bessie's book, Out of Sorts, which is, um, from everything I can tell, a really good book. It says this, this was when Jesus became the center of everything to me. I began to understand that if I wanted to see God, I needed to see Jesus he was the image of God for us. Everything I didn't understand about the Bible or the church was now filtered through the lens of Christ. If Jesus came to show us what God is truly like, that perhaps there are many, there have been many ways, so many ways, 
in which we've missed it, myself included. I think that's so true. And that's why we want to spend this season and really our lives as a church looking at who is this person of Christ. Who does the Bible present him to be? Who does the author of Hebrews present him to be? And to wrestle through that. Not the Jesus of our culture, not the Jesus of even our traditions, but the Jesus of Scripture. Who does Hebrews claim? Who does the Bible claim him to be? Hebrews presents that because of Jesus' life and his death that we now have the veil pulled back, that we now have access directly to God, that we, like Moses, can speak face-to-face with God. That's profound. Do we believe it? Hebrews presents Jesus as making a way for all of us to be adopted, to be called sons and daughters of God. That he is our Father, that he loves us with the heart of a Father. Do we believe it? Do we really believe that God's heart is the heart of a father who loves us and has good plans for us and sees us as his precious children and who regularly calls out to us, I love you. Remember who you are. Today, well, it's still today. If you have ears to hear, don't harden your hearts. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you even for the tensions that it creates in us. That you've given us minds to process. That you've called us to dig into this stuff and to explore it and to, and to find truth within it. God, I pray you give us the wisdom and the grace to not be hardened by our doubts, by our trials, by our struggles, but to bring them to you, to in our stance, turn our face toward you, God, teach us, show us. Continue to reveal yourself through your word, through your spirit. Help us to have the strength to believe, to endure, to carry on, so that we might experience the rest that is in your heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.